Tonight the topic is dependent origination. And this is one of the foundational teachings of the Buddha. It's fundamental to the understanding of how suffering is created in our minds. I think of it as a detailed exposition of the second noble truth, the truth that craving is the cause, the origin of suffering. I feel like I've been giving a lot of talks on dukkha, and yet this is what arises. So, and the Buddha, you know, I I do reflect too that the Buddha taught, as I think I said last week, the what I teach is suffering and its end, and something about the description in this teaching as a description of how suffering arises. I don't think of it as a practice. We don't practice dependent origination. We don't practice the arising of suffering. Suffering arises. And yet this description of how suffering comes to be can be so supportive for us in our practice. In the teaching... is quite uh, complex and profound. There's a story of Ananda, kind of a famous story, where Ananda is expressing his appreciation for the Buddhist teaching and for the teaching of dependent origination in particular. And Ananda says, it is wonderful, it is marvelous how profound this dependent origination is, how profound it appears. And yet it appears to me as clear as clear. And the Buddha responds, don't say that, Ananda. That this teaching of dependent origination is profound and appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this doctrine that this generation has come to be like a tangled ball of string. And so basically he's pointing to Ananda's uh, understanding, saying, oh, this is so clear to me. As the Buddha pointing back to say, well, there's probably more for you to understand there, Ananda. The Buddha says, it is through not understanding, not penetrating this teaching that this generation has become like a ball of tangled string, unable to pass beyond states of woe. And so here, essentially, the Buddha is connecting or equating the lack of understanding of dependent origination with being stuck. with being stuck on this cycle of struggle, of suffering, being caught 
by these patterns. And elsewhere, the Buddha seems to indicate that one who deeply penetrates dependent origination has fully seen the Dharma, is fully awakened. And so it's a deep teaching, a profound teaching. We're probably not going to get it tonight. And yet, in my own in my own exploration, I find that meeting teachings, there may be some piece of a teaching that resonates with me, speaks to me, I practice with it, I understand a little bit of it. And then it's kind of a cycle or an iteration. I might hear another, the teaching another time and because there's been a little bit of a level of understanding, the teaching goes a little deeper. And so we can hear these teachings over and over and over again, each time maybe understanding something new, seeing something new in our experience. I think it's helpful to explore this teaching of dependent origination, the teaching of how suffering comes to be. There's a couple of aspects of the overall picture of dependent origination I want to point to that for me are supports. And I I do want to try to make this talk both practical and um, accessible to support at least for me, this, this teaching has been a direct support for the practice. And that's what I hope to convey. What I hope to, to transmit somehow to you. The first thing that um, I want to point to about this teaching is the Buddha described suffering coming to being in a, in a process As I said, it's a kind of a detailed description of how craving leads to suffering. And in this description, he's pointing to essentially processes at work in our minds. He's pointing to things that we all share. Processes that we share as human beings as we start to investigate this teaching in in more depth, as we start to look at what it says, we can begin to recognize some parts of this uh, process at work in our own minds. And instead of taking the process of creation of suffering personally, instead of taking it as poor me, thinking I'm the only one who ever suffers, we can recognize it as part of a human process that the Buddha articulated almost 2,600 years ago. We are not alone in how our minds do these things. And the Buddha, the genius of the Buddha to be able to articulate how these processes work with such clarity 
And so we can start to see these processes and recognize, oh, this, this is what the Buddha was talking about. This is how it works. Not just in this mind, but in human minds. So he's articulating a human process. Another piece of this teaching is that it points to the arising of suffering, the arising of struggle, of dissatisfaction, of discontent, of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, sometimes the phrase goes, as a conditioned process. It doesn't arise randomly. There are conditions that come to be, that create, that tend to head us in the direction of suffering. So the chain of dependent origination, there are 12 links in this chain, and we will briefly touch on all of them tonight. These 12 links describe conditions that support each other in the creation of suffering. And so it describes a conditioned process and yet not a deterministic process. The framing of the teaching, I'll I'll read this piece to you. This is how the Buddha taught dependent origination in brief. He said, with ignorance as a condition, mental formations come to be. Don't worry about all of the links at this point. I'll, we'll go through them each. With ignorance as a condition, mental formations come to be. With mental formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as condition, mental and physical processes come to be. With mental and physical processes come to be, the six sense bases come to be. With the six sense bases as condition, contact comes to be with contact feeling, with feeling craving, with craving clinging, with clinging becoming, with becoming birth, with birth, aging and death. And thus is born the entire mass of suffering. And so it, it describes conditions that lead to the entire mass of suffering. And yet it's conditions, it's not deterministic. And a lot of what leads us on in this conditioned direction is the lack of mindfulness and wisdom. The very root of the chain of dependent origination is ignorance. Ignorance about suffering. Because of that, ignorance, because we are caught, not mindful, of what's happening, typically our habitual patterns, our tendencies are kind of tumbling on. And those habits and patterns basically lead us through this cycle over and over again. And yet, if we introduce the condition, the conditions of mindfulness and wisdom, a very different process can unfold.
So this chain, this description of with this is conditioned, that comes to be, with that is conditioned, that comes to be. It's laid out in 12 links, as I described. And yet, it's interesting to notice that last link, the link of uh, aging and death, equated with suffering here. The Buddha says, thus arises the entire mass of suffering. It is also understood that suffering often, not always, let's say suffering when it is met with bewilderment, when it is not met with mindfulness and wisdom, suffering tends to reinforce ignorance. And so this chain becomes a cycle that with the arising of suffering, when mindfulness and wisdom are not meeting that suffering, more ignorance is born and the cycle just perpetuates itself. And yet the the hope is, the, the possibility of the understanding here is that this cycle tends to perpetuate itself when mindfulness and wisdom are not present. And so the cultivation of mindfulness and wisdom can begin to shift the unfolding. And yet it's useful to understand this chain, this cycle. The teachings in both the suttas, the words of the Buddha, and in the extensive commentaries that have built up around these teachings of the Buddha. They um, talk about this teaching of dependent origination in, in different ways. In one way, it describes, it says that this teaching of dependent origination can describe how suffering can arise based on conditions from the distant past, including former lives, and can propel into the distant future, including future lives. So this is a piece of this teaching, that there is an understanding that the, uh, the suffering, the ignorance that's being cultivated in this life may be perpetuated very far into the future and 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 come from very far in the past. There's also a description in the suttas and in the commentaries about this teaching basically being a description moment to moment of how suffering comes to be moment to moment. And this second perspective is the one that I Uh, we'll speak to more this evening. It's the one that I resonate with more fully. I don't have any any direct experience with past lives or that's not part of my experience. And so I I can't apply this teaching in that way in in my own practice. And yet this teaching has had a very profound support for me in my practice of looking at moment to moment suffering. And yet I think also we can understand that teaching, whether or not you believe in 
past lives or future lives. We can understand that the teaching is also pointing to the ways that um, ignorance and suffering kind of are perpetuated over time as well as being created in a moment. And we see this. We see this in our practice. We're sitting here perhaps calmly with the breath or just the mind is fairly calm and then some, for some reason that we do not see, although it is conditioned, perhaps for some reason we do not see, a memory of the past arises. Things that have happened in the past come into the present through thought. And in that, this way, the conditions of the past contribute to what's happening now or influence what's happening now. So this teaching of dependent origination has many layers and many uh, feedback loops, many feed-forward loops. In the um, description of this teaching, the classical teaching, as I said, it begins with ignorance. Ignorance is kind of the ground out of which the entire mass of suffering is born. That if we see through ignorance, the whole thing falls apart. And yet I found in my own exploration of this teaching that it's helpful actually to start kind of partway through in exploring what it means and how we can see it in our own practice. And so I'm going to skip the first some four links or so right now and jump right to exploring in our experience we have sense bases. This is one of the links. The fact that we have mental and physical processes conditions the sense bases. So we have, we've got these bodies. We've got these bodies. We've got these minds. We have sense bases. We have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, mouth, uh, um, skin, and the mind. So we have these sense bases. Because, we have, because we're conscious, because we're not corpses, because we're conscious, these sense bases are receiving sense impressions. So this is sense Im- the, the sense bases with sense bases as condition, contact arises. Because we have sense bases, we experience sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and things arising in our mind. So this is sense bases conditioning contact. With contact as conditioned feeling comes to be. So all of these contacts, we've talked about this, every single contact that we have, every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste, everything that arises in our mind is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant. This is a um, universal factor of every moment's experience, that it contains this flavor of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So with contact as condition, feeling comes to be. Feeling tone comes to be. Very simple. Very simple. Just pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. 
Based on this feeling tone, and we've talked about this link also quite a bit outside of the context of dependent origination, but based on pleasant feeling, we tend to want, we like that feeling, we want more of it. If unpleasant, we tend to not like it, we want to not have it. And so in this way, with feeling as condition, craving comes to be. Now this, we've talked about this, I think, especially as we explored mindfulness of feeling. You know, as we perhaps begin to explore bringing mindfulness to feeling tone itself, we might see the power of how mindfulness and wisdom can start to turn this chain in a different direction. Because when mindfulness just sees pleasant experience, oh, this is a pleasant experience. And many of you have seen this. Oh, pleasant. And it doesn't lead onward to wanting, to leaning towards. It's just a pleasant experience. It arises, it passes. When we are not mindful, when ignorance is present in the mind, that feeling tone tends to condition craving. It conditions wanting. And so again, this is kind of pointing back to that very beginning link. Ignorance, actually ignorance is the link that basically conditions the entire unfolding of the chain. When ignorance is present, feeling leads to craving. And so this is a lot of what we look at in our experience. The craving, the wanting. It's very simple. Just feels kind of automatic, you know, that something's pleasant, we want it. We move towards it. Something's unpleasant, we move away from it. It's, 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 as we talked about, it's kind of an organic amoeba-like response to pleasant and unpleasant. And yet in our own minds, it's not hardwired And it is possible to just notice pleasant without having a subsequent reactivity or uh, without having that craving follow on from wanting and from the feeling. Craving here representing both the leaning towards and the leaning against. Then again, uh, when, we are, when ignorance is present, we kind of automatically want to act on that wanting, to do something, to get the thing, to get rid of the thing. We take some kind of action to, to hold on to the experience, to grasp an object, to push away an experience, to figure out how to control or fix or change an experience, or to push away an object. So this is the movement in the direction of clinging. With craving as condition, clinging comes to be. There's kind of a gradation along the line of craving and clinging. They're they're just like, it's almost like clinging is an intensification of craving. Bhikkhu Bodhi described this process with an analogy. Bhikkhu Bodhi is the uh, translator, the English translator of many of our, um, of many of the suttas in the Pali Canon. And he described the, um, the act of wanting, the mental state of wanting, as being like a thief 
who has spied something they, they like and they are reaching out to get it. And then the act of clinging is the picking it up. So it's a kind of an intensification, but there is a distinct kind of congealing or grasping, holding to that happens with the clinging. Once we've clung to something, it like sets in motion processes of mind that kind of want to um, serve that clinging. I like this description by Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He says that the next link in the chain called becoming, clinging conditions becoming, he says that becoming is the intentions and actions that rally in the service of clinging. So it's the process of behavior that's generated in order to keep that thing, hold that thing at bay. So we, the thief, grasps the thing and then there's a whole set of processes involved to, uh, to have him keep that, the whole um, sneaking out of the house and finding a safe place to keep the thing. So you know, just, just, there's a whole set of things that go on in this process. As essentially, I think of this becoming as being the, the intentions that lead us to this place of feeling like we're in control of our destiny. We like becoming. It feels like we're in charge. It feels like we're, we know where we're headed, how we'll get there. We feel like we know how we're going to control something, fix it or change it or keep it. So there's the, the act of grasping and then there's this whole kind of complex of mental processes that try to figure out how can I keep this going? So that's becoming. And following from becoming is birth into some kind of an identity. Things become mine or me. It can take, can, can take kind of an obvious form of identification such that this is my cup. It's mine. It's got my name on it. Or maybe something along the lines of, I'm the kind of person who does things right. Just a a kind of an owning of the, uh, you know, like the person, the person um, who, I am the one who can control things. It's like the, the becoming is the movement in the direction of, oh, I know how to do this. And the birth is like, I am doing this. 
It's, it's, it's almost like the, the same gradation between wanting and clinging from becoming to birth. It's like the movement in the direction and then the fully taking birth into that identity. I can control this. I can fix this. I can hold on to this. This is mine. Not this is how I'm going to keep it, but this is mine. So from here, the Buddha says, suffering is inevitable. It might result from the kind of obvious separation from something we consider as mine, or it might result in the subtler way of, you know, when we take birth into an identity, not just of owning something, but birth into an identity of, I'm a good yogi, or I can do this, I can fix this, I can control this. We take birth into those identities. And then when, as we talked about, we've talked about, you know, the, the truths of impermanent, unreliable, out of control manifest. And we see that we don't always have control of our destiny. We cannot always be the one who is the good yogi. We cannot always be the one who can control the outcome of events. When we see that, that identity is kind of proven in some ways to be a myth. If we've clung tightly to that identity, we'll suffer. We may feel like we're a failure. I did something wrong. Or the world is to blame. Others are to blame for this suffering. You know, this process of taking birth in an identity often, I would say quite often, also comes with the birth of other. And so sometimes that, that separation of self and other, sometimes this process of becoming and birth is actually experienced more as creating other. That person is to blame. That person is wrong. That person is something. And so there's this separation. In that separation there is a sense of self also. And so sometimes we can explore this process of birth, of becoming and birth. When we see ourselves othering, we see ourselves making somebody into other, some identity that we're putting onto somebody else. We sometimes suffer when other people do this to us, put identities onto us. There's a lot of suffering in this world that happens from this selfing and othering. Racism, sexism, homophobia, all forms of isms have this process at work of selfing and othering. And so the exploration of this birth, you might notice it, a sense of, sometimes a sense of birth has a clear sense of me, 
here, sometimes it has a sense of you there, them, the other. So noticing both sides of this process. This separation, this congealing in identity leads to so much suffering in our world. So this cycle, which we've gone through so far just from sense bases, sense bases to contact, to feeling, to craving, to clinging, to becoming, to birth, to suffering. It tends to perpetuate itself. It tends to reinforce itself. Because we don't understand suffering, because we don't understand how this whole process works, We are very much driven by this pattern, especially this deep pattern around feeling tone, pleasant leading us towards something, unpleasant wanting to push us away from something. We're really kind of driven by that process at such a deep level, including in the cycle itself, this this, uh, chain Many of the links of this, this chain are mind states, are processes in our mind. Craving, clinging, becoming. All processes, mental processes, mental formations. And the, um, they come with a feeling tone. So wanting feels unpleasant. Any of you notice that? When you start to look at wanting, you see the feeling of wanting itself, it doesn't feel good. And so there's, along with this process of there's something out there that we think we want, we're separated from that, and there's a little bit of unpleasantness about the separation from that thing or the, the wanting that thing, there's also when wanting springs up, there's immediately a feeling of offness. Wanting comes with unpleasant. Wanting, the experience of wanting is unpleasant. And so because of that, there's also the drive to get rid of the wanting. So there's not only the the desire to have the thing that we want, there's the desire to get rid of the wanting. So we've got this double process going there. And then... If we act on that wanting, which is likely if we're not paying attention to what's going on, if we act on that wanting and we get the thing that we want or get rid of the thing that we don't want, we get the moment of some pleasure of having that thing. We also get the pleasure of becoming in that moment. When we've got it, we've got the control. Yes, I figured it out. I know how to get concentrated. I know how to do this. That becoming that sense of feeling like we have that control feels really good. And so not only when we get the thing that we want, 
do we have the little bit of pleasant that we get from having it. We get the pleasantness that comes from the wanting going away, and we get the pleasantness of feeling like we figured it out. And so these cycles tend to reinforce themselves. Without mindfulness, it's very hard to break through this cycle of wanting, craving, clinging, becoming. And there's more. So let's go back to the links we haven't talked about yet. Ignorance conditions mental formations, conditions consciousness. So, because this chain describes a cyclic pattern, as I described, the suffering tends to lead to more ignorance. We can think of this as almost the first link in the chain. Suffering tends to lead to ignorance. When mindfulness and wisdom are not present, suffering heads in that direction. When mindfulness is, and when suffering is met with mindfulness and wisdom, there's the possibility, actually there's another chain that's described, the chain of transcendent dependent origination, where when suffering is met with understanding. Suffering conditions the arising of faith. And faith conditions the arising of delight and joy and happiness and concentration moving in the direction of freedom. And so that's this point in the chain, suffering without mindfulness and wisdom leads to more ignorance. With mindfulness and wisdom, we step on a completely different path towards faith, towards freedom. So a main definition of ignorance is not understanding suffering, not understanding the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha says, not knowing about suffering, not knowing about the origin of suffering, not knowing about the cessation of suffering, not knowing about the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is called ignorance. And so with ignorance, in ignorance, we tend to think that that cycle we've talked about, that deep pattern around getting what I want will bring me happiness, Getting rid of what I don't want will make me happy. We tend to believe that that is the way to happiness. And so that very belief keeps us caught on this cycle. So with ignorance as a condition, when we have this belief that getting what I want will bring me happiness, we do not, when we do not understand experience to be impermanent, unreliable, out of control, it conditions our mental formations. It conditions 
intentions, actions about how we decide to do things, how we behave. Mental formations is a kind of a whole set of things that go on in our mind. Everything from anger, frustration, confusion, um, irritation, pride, conceit, arrogance, concentration, mindfulness, faith, wisdom. All of these are mental formations. With ignorance as condition, certain mental formations tend to come to be. We tend to um, be, be with when we have these beliefs about what will make us happy. If, what we, if we think what will make us happy is getting what we want, we'll tend to con- condition the mind in that direction. Essentially, these mental formations are the whole set of our habits and patterns that you know, we've been looking at. All of this, these patterns that we see arising in our minds. We think that we're acting to alleviate our suffering. But we, in our habitual ways, when we try to get rid of something that's unpleasant or hold on to something that we think we want, we think we're, we're acting in our best interest. And yet we are seeing very clearly here that this is not a way to a deeper kind of happiness. Yes, it can create a kind of happiness in the moment, a short, momentary kind of happiness. And yet we're learning about a deeper kind of happiness that's possible here. So with these habits, these patterns, conditioned by our beliefs about what leads to happiness, the next link is consciousness comes to be. That's when I've spent some time reflecting on what does this mean that with mental forms, formations as conditioned, consciousness comes to be. The way I'm understanding it at this point is that because of the way we think, because of the habits and patterns of our mind, we have kind of filters in our experience. We have, we have, um, we're seeing the world through certain lenses. And we see this a lot, I think. We see, we see certain patterns or habits, um, familiar ones particularly. Somebody the other day was talking about seeing the world through an angry filter. It's like this is the angry lens. Didn't matter what the attention was turned to, anger resulted. I've had this experience. I've, anger is one of my... Uh, most familiar patterns and one time I was doing meditation in the lower walking room here and I was noticing that anger was the state of the mind and I was working with it and exploring it and being with it and yet it was pretty predominant so I was kind of stuck in it and I turned around at the end of my walking path and at the other end of the walking path was was a pair of shoes and my mind landed on those pair of shoes and exploded in anger. Who put those shoes at the end of my walking path? This is the filter of anger. And so with, with filters, with different um, 
these mental formations, what, we, uh, what our agendas are, what our views are, what I, our ideas are, what our beliefs are, what our emotions are, we tend to see things in the world in a certain way. And so what we take in, what consciousness connects with, is filtered based on our ideas, agendas, views, opinions, emotions. We think that our senses are taking in experience as if our eyes were like cameras, our ears were like microphones. And yet that is not the way our minds work. That's not the way our senses work. There are studies, there's, a, there's studies done on this kind of factor of mind in psychology. It's called selective attention. When we are focused on something, there are things that we just do not see. We can be asked to, to look at a video and do a certain task, focus on something, watch a guy doing a magic trick. I just watched a TV program where they were playing with this selective perception. And they said, see if you can figure out how I um, change this, uh, this, uh, this liquid into a bunny. So I was watching really closely. And, um, and then at the end of that, I, I hadn't, I, I had seen, I thought I'd saw maybe where that switch had happened, but I was really focused on it. And then, and then they ran the video back and, the, and they said, well, so, and then did you see these other things that were happening at the same time? This very large bunny walking across <laughs> the, the video? No, I didn't see the very large bunny. The agenda to focus meant consciousness did not take in the bunny. This happens to us all the time. (laughs) And yet we believe that we're seeing things clearly, that we are seeing things exactly as they are. And so even something as simple as an agenda can screen certain things in and certain things out. Imagine what a whole history of a pattern can do in terms of taking in information of the world. We do not see things as they are. I think there's a famous quote, we don't see things as we are. I think it's Anais Nin. We don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And so this to me is mental formations conditioning consciousness. We see things. Consciousness lands on things in a certain way. Maybe not landing on things. Consciousness may not come to be. The bunny consciousness did not come to be. With consciousness's condition... The next link is mental and physical processes come to be. So based on this, these mental formations and what, what we're taking in, our 
minds and bodies are uh, influenced. If we've got the angry lens on, our bodies are impacted. Our face may become distorted. Our body may be tense and tight. Mental formation and consciousness conditioning mental process, physical processes. Mental states of mind tend to condition more mental states of mind. We tend to, uh, things, things, we tend to filter in or out certain things that kind of agree with our perceptions and keep leading us on towards suffering. So this cycle tends to reinforce itself. Our filters tend to reinforce our pre-existing perspective. So it continues. We come back to this beginning point. So we've looped all the way around now, back to the sense doors. And we see, you know, when we first started talking about it, it's like, oh yeah, there's a body, there's sight, I'm seeing things. Oh, there's pleasant, unpleasant. But we see that we're not coming at this now neutral, from a neutral place. We are already skewed. We are already influenced by mental formations, ideas, agendas, views, beliefs that influence what we take in. So this cycle has a very strong conditioning itself, reinforcing itself, reinforcing our views, our beliefs, our opinions, our patterns. And yet it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless because mindfulness and wisdom can completely change the direction of this pattern. Again, this describes a chain of conditions. Ignorance at the head of the list, leading to the entire unfolding of this pattern. If we bring mindfulness and wisdom to our experience, we are undermining wisdom. There's often an emphasis on breaking the cycle of dependent origination at the feeling-craving link. And it's a very powerful practice to explore feeling tone. The Buddha emphasizes exploring feeling tone over and over again in the suttas. He emphasizes it in the second foundation of mindfulness. When feeling arises, when pleasant sensation arises, know it's pleasant, no unpleasant. And so really opening to this exploration of feeling tone, as we open to that with mindfulness and wisdom, we see the possibility for it not to lead on to craving. Bringing mindfulness and wisdom to feeling tone undermines the possibility for ignorance to be there because we are noticing in the moment, oh, this is just feeling tone. And yet, while that's a very powerful place to break this link, that break this chain, bringing mindfulness and wisdom to feeling tone. The Buddha describes that attention to any place we are, anything we wake up to, anywhere we find ourselves in this chain, mindfulness arises in the midst of, let's say, screaming rage. 
We have not seen the feeling that led to that. Screaming rage is present and mindfulness arises there. The Buddha says right there, it's possible to understand that screaming rage. Screaming rage is a mental formation. In one sutta, the Buddha describes with respect to every single link in the chain of dependent origination, how we can practice for freedom right in the midst of exploring that. And so if we look at mental formation, when one understands mental formations, when one understands, I'll put screaming rage in there, When one understands screaming rage, the origin of screaming rage, the cessation of screaming rage, and the way leading to the cessation of screaming rage. In this way, one has arrived at right view and has arrived at the Dharma. In this way, one makes, has freedom here and now Let me find the full quote. When a noble disciple has understood craving, has understood the origin of craving, the cessation of craving, and the way leading to the cessation of craving, that one now makes an end to suffering. That same pattern, a pattern you probably recognize, repeated over and over again. When one has understood clinging, understood the origin of clinging, the cessation of clinging, and the way leading to the cessation of clinging, one here and now makes an end to suffering. At every link in this chain, the Buddha applies the pattern of the Four Noble Truths as an insight into that pattern. It might be screaming rage. It might be depression. It might be confusion. It might be feeling tone. It might be love. We understand the state of mind We understand the experience, the origin of the experience, the end of the experience, and the way leading to the ending of the experience. We here and now make an end to suffering. Whatever is happening, no matter what is happening, the practice can in that very moment lead to freedom. I, I talked about my belief that I had to, you know, get over or get beyond certain hindrances and especially around self-hatred feeling like, okay, well, yeah, this is my self-hatred retreat. Okay, I guess I have to wait for enlightenment later. Kind of that kind of belief in my mind. Have to wait for insight But when I finally kind of surrendered 
to recognizing this is self-hatred. This is how self-hatred arises. Oh, this is how self-hatred ends. The mind understood in that moment something very deeply, right in the midst of exploring. I wasn't seeing feeling leading to whatever it was. I, I was just noticing the, the experience. I did notice that the experience of self-hatred was unpleasant. But right in the middle of whatever's arising, to me, this is an inspiring part of this teaching, especially this teaching. This, for those of you who like references, the uh, teaching, the, re- the sutta I'm quoting from, that applies the formation of the Four Noble Truths or this pattern of the Four Noble Truths to all the links of dependent origination is in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's number nine, sutta called Right View. I find that very inspiring because it keeps me coming back to waking up here and now. No need to create anything else. What's happening now, we can meet, we can wake up to. It doesn't matter what we bring our attention to, what we are, what we are noticing in the present moment. It doesn't have to be something else. This experience, Alexis pointed to this in his talk the other night. Everything is showing us the Dhamma. Everything, even screaming rage, can show us the Dhamma. When we bring mindfulness and wisdom to bear on it. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.